0: Welcome to Committing Faith in Public. This is the podcast for people who want to be inspired by individuals and communities of faith doing good work in public. Our guests tell stories of their work of weaving a more just, kind, and diversity-inclusive society. Our starting place for stories is Oklahoma because that is where we live, and because many people, both in Oklahoma and beyond, are surprised when they learn that interreligious-friendly, pro-democracy, diversity-welcoming, public good-oriented religion even exists in Oklahoma. So through this podcast, we're spreading good news and encouraging you in your faith and public life work. I'm Gary Peluso-Verdin, President Emeritus at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and working on the Religion and Public Life Initiative for the Seminary. I'm on today with two of my favorite people, a couple of colleagues here at Phillips Theological Seminary, Sarah Maurice Brubaker, who is the Associate Professor of Theology. And Sarah, you've been here about, is this your 11th year now? Yes. Wow, 11th, 11th year. year.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Yeah. Time is flying. Yes. <laughs> uh, and with uh, Joe Bessler, who is the Robert Travis Peake Professor of Theology. And Joe came to Phillips in 1992? Correct. Yeah. 92, which yeah. gives you how many years then? That's 20. About
2: 27
0: plus. Yeah, so this is going on 28 <laughs> years.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Tremendous. Yeah.
0: Tremendous. Good times. This is a bit of a special episode of Committing Faith in Public, because want to talk about a public story uh, that I haven't heard many on the more liberal progressive side talking about in and trying to get it at in theological terms and theological always includes at least in american context something of a moral uh, uh terms also but i've heard it talked about a lot as i read articles from the religious right the story of impeachment and what impeachment means, I can say with high confidence, uh, a perspective that i don 't share, and that I doubt that my two colleagues here share, which is uh, right now on the on the far religious right, by which I am referring to, for instance, the Council of advisors uh, around uh, President Trump okay. uh, who are much more um, into prophecy and end-time sorts of thinking, then I think that a whole lot of folks who were once associated with the uh, moral majority in the Christian coalition of, of yesteryears uh, were. And they are speaking of impeachment as satanic, as this is the, the devil uh, trying to unseat God's anointed president, uh, which is the way they see him, as God's anointed um, we've heard over the years now that he's Cyrus the Persian, who has liberated conservative Christians from the captivity they suffered during the Obama administration, and that he is Nehemiah the wall builder and and, and the like. But impeachment has brought out a new level. So uh, – and, and let's just confirm – that is not the perspective that you two would share would that, would that be correct
2: that would be correct, <laughs> correct. yes
0: <laughs> good so what so how should you know thinking thinking about the, the people who are, are are listening to this podcast some of them are clergy and uh, various uh, faith traditions who are wondering so how do I talk to my congregation not necessarily from the pulpit not always the best place to Introduce the most radical ideas around, but in 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 teaching and in everyday conversation. So, how do we think theologically about impeachment? So, what comes to mind when you think about that?
2: Well, for for me on on this, I I went to the classic kind of text of Nathan confronting David uh, in Two Samuel. Uh, on to six, and and I I did that just because it's such a classic text of the prophetic role of of religion in terms of critiquing the abuse of power, and I couldn't also help but notice how how much better David ultimately comes across than the current president in terms of hearing and a capacity to receive that critique and to be moved by it and to and. To, to change one's heart, right?
0: Right. You can't. You can't think of Psalm of uh, President Trump ever uh, being alleged to have written Psalm fifty one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Correct. <laughs> and as as well as you you can imagine that in response to Nathan confronting him, he might try to bring in all of his advisors and mock Nathan, or you know he might try to. Have, I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's. I mean the the analogy to Nathan is, in some sense, in a secular culture, the press. The press huh. has huh. this responsibility to huh. critique the power. And this president has done nothing but vilify the press amidst thousands of lies and misstatements of truth. And so he seems really quite incapable, uh, actually, of, of hearing or receiving a moral critique
0: huh.
2: in a way that he would acknowledge.
0: Huh. Yeah, real point of contrast with that biblical story, which has also been used to justify um, uh, God's choice of President Trump, by the way, uh, that, uh, well, you know, God uses sinners. Uh, God uses people who have done awful things uh, to accomplish God's purposes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, you got something?
1: I'm thinking about what Joe said about this president being incapable of hearing critique and I think that also holds true among a lot of his base. So, in the question of what what preachers should say, what clergy should say, I wish I knew, but I I truly don't know what you say to someone who is um, has made a decision not to subject the the contents of their convictions to any kind of even possibility of correction.
0: By the highest levels. Yes. Right. 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 Uh, No one can indict me for anything while I'm president. Mm
1: -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. That Um, seems
0: like an anti-biblical sort of statement to me. Certainly. Yeah.
1: Right. And I just think about how some of the same quarters will, in other contexts, loudly talk about how the authority comes from the consent of the governed, but somehow that mm-hmm. goes out the window when you know they they have their king. Um, mm-hmm. So I I wish I knew what to say. I'm utterly confounded by
0: it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm suspecting a lot of our listeners are at the same place. <laughs> this leads me to to uh, that subject which has been really sore for a lot of us that that uh, sort of unites the press and I think. Nearly anybody else who is trying to pay attention to data, um, which is, which is, it seems one of the things I can't wrap my mind around, I can't get my head into, is how two such different narratives are being told about. Uh, about the episode or the events that are are reported in the impeachment process, right? With with one narrative being, the Democrats have been out to get him since since even before he was elected. They've been looking for something. Um, they, no pun intended, trumped up a bunch of charges, um, a- amped them up, ginned them up, and 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 voila, we, we've got an impeachment. Versus what looks to be a careful laying out of all kinds of data and evidence, at least as much evidence as, as the investigators have been allowed to uh, gather without hearing directly from everyone the president has claimed executive privilege for or otherwise uh, shut down and said, you may not testify uh, with these people. But uh, for years now, probably since my PhD days, you know, I've heard about incommensurate moral universes, And these are incommensurate narratives, right? I mean, you can't, you have a hard time thinking, I'm looking at the same stuff, right? And and yet this, in terms of, in, in a theological religious world, I mean, for me, this pushes into truth. And I know that truth has been a a really fraught category uh, uh throughout all of philosophical history <laughs> uh, but particularly in the postmodern era right uh with the breakdown of the grand narratives that also support you know that this is a true claim when i did a blog a few weeks ago i created a photo taking a few uh carpenters levels putting them in a wastebasket and calling it trash yeah. Uh, that this is in the trash now. And if I could could have put a plumb line in there, I would have done the same thing. Because I thought true, you know, true in the old sense, in the modern sense, was, was, uh, was borrowed uh, or, or at least shared with the world of building. Uh, if something was true, it meant it was on level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if something was plumb, it meant there's a wall that's standing up straight, and it's not going to fall over as you keep putting more and more bricks on top of it. Uh, because you've built a proper foundation and and a proper line to keep everything in place I still have these old fashioned notions I guess of, of truth that there's something about, true is something about approximating some kind of reality and I know Post again. Postmodern philosophy and it breaks breaks that up, and and I've, I guess I've never uh, been able to completely embrace uh, uh, postmodernism. But this to me looks like some some version of apocalyptic postmodernism. So I'm going to shut up there and see what responses you might have to this issue of truth.
1: Oh golly! Well, with apologies, I need to tell listeners i'm actually on sabbatical right now working on a book and you you kind of get in the zone where you think everything that possibly comes up in conversation (laughs) relates to your research topic so i fear that i'm doing that right now but i think it's actually (laughs) good Um, so um one scholarly conversation that i only recently discovered but have found so interesting it actually um if If you're familiar with the analytic versus continental philosophical split, it actually happens over among the analytic folks, which is why I didn't know about it, because I don't really read them that much, but um, I will now. And it's on epistemic injustice. And in uh, in particular, there's a book by Miranda Fricker from uh, 2007, and that kind of got this conversation started. And she has a notion of credibility excess, which it sort of functions... If you can imagine thinking about ways that our system is set up to give some people a whole lot of money in ways that are unjust, it it's similar to that. Like some people, not because they deserve it, mm-hmm. <laughs> just mm-hmm. because of how things work, unjustly get an, a huge excess of credibility mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, in some mm-hmm. circles... Mm-hmm. And I find that to be helpful thinking about the different narratives that have emerged.
0: So So help me out a little bit. Apply some of what you just said to these these impeachment narratives on yeah. one side or the other.
1: So I, I don't think it would be at odds with Frickers analysis to say that among a certain demographic, Fox News has a credibility excess.
3: Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I see.
1: That it has has done nothing to deserve, and you mentioned kind of the nature of truth and where Fricker falls is within the virtue epistemologist. So, oh gosh, now I really am becoming one of those insufferable people at the cocktail party no, who can talk go about their, <laughs> their but their um, But the idea is they're reacting to something called process re- reliabilism, which is um, the idea that if I follow the right process. I will get good knowledge. Okay. And what they want to say is, actually, we should think of it more as traits that live in you, whether they're cognitive Mm. traits Mm. or character traits. Mm -hmm. So a virtue epistemologist might say, um, it's it's good to be open-minded, not just because that's a good way to be a person, but because it actually gives you better knowledge. Mm -hmm. So... The question lurking behind that is the one you named, which is, is there in fact a describable reality that we all share? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and descriptions can correspond to that better or worse, and I think they'd answer that in different ways. Um, but I find it helpful to think about truth as being um, at least somehow related to these characteristics of my of my character, of, hmm. of hmm. whether... Um, Related to these virtues that I may or may not possess, Mm -hmm. that I can find myself in an advantageous position to develop if I've been blessed with great education and teachers that taught critical thinking, Mm -hmm. or that I can uh, not have lucked out and found myself in a good position to develop. Um, But the end result is that furnishes me with much worse knowledge and makes it much harder to talk across these... uh, Drastically different narratives Mm -hmm. Where you feel like you're not even looking at the same world Let alone describing it
0: Mm -hmm. similarly And I'm going to welcome all of our listeners To an episode of The Good Place <laughs> <Since we're, laughs> this is exactly yeah. the kind of stuff yes. that Cheaty talks about on A Good Place. Yeah. Kind of a virtue, uh a v- <laughs> right. virtuistic kind of version of, of, of how we talk about truth versus somewhat objectivist uh, understanding uh, and somehow looking for how do we have shared narratives and shared facts? Yes. And how can we have even a, a decent deliberation if we don't have something of the same? of a commensurate set of worlds mm-hmm. uh, to talk from. Joe?
2: Well, I, I very much liked what Sarah was just talking about. It seems to me that on the conservative side, this narrative does have a history and a, a pivotal moment in, in that history of truth and of their particular version of truth or of certainty, uh, really goes to the election of Ronald Reagan and the and the bond with oh. it seems to me not just with Jerry Falwell, but also with the newly elected Pope in the Vatican, mm-hmm. uh, John Paul II, mm-hmm. uh, and and really the a kind of starting and, and beginning with Reagan who changed his own tune on abortion, mm-hmm. but but using abortion in particular as the murder of innocent life, this mm-hmm. whole notion of mm-hmm. innocence mm-hmm. Uh, as well as gun rights as a certainty in our in our constitution that that goes to the sense of what a good I mean notice it 's truth there 's a kind of certainty, but it 's infused with this moral virtue, and then of course race, and this also goes to the a racial purity.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, idea
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, or again these pe- these pieces are brought together in terms of the certainty of moral certainty of traditions Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Bob Dole got in quite a bit of trouble with in terms of the uh, a later election when he said uh, in his nominating speech, there was a better time in America. And I remember it. And, and at that point, uh, Bill Clinton, I believe, came back and said, hmm, when was that better time? Right. Who was for it whom? better for? Right. <laughs> but this is a key question because you begin to get a clearer sense of the formation of a group Mm -hmm. based upon these kind of internalized certainties. Mm. And that then is it's it's designed, it's very designed is to contrast with those people's. You're not looking they are not looking for a common bond. They are not looking for a common truth they are looking to insist on theirs and quite frankly it's it's also within this last 40 year period that you have a ratcheting up of almost civil war language right right, right. and and that kind of language which is uh, especially on the right designed to create cleavage in order to create passion around their truth claims so i i think this has a has a history Trump is playing on this. Uh, he plays it like a fiddle. So I, that's where right, I'd leave that for now.
0: Yeah, and I see a parallel between Christian rights, sort of Manichaean theology of darkness and light of of there's there are children of darkness there are children of light rather than you know good and evil running down the center of all of us and down the center of society and and it's and and a lot of our life is really about choices um and uh newt gingrich who in the gingrich revolution uh when he was speaker he was the one who said this is not compromise this is warfare we are not opponents we are enemies yeah Right. And for me, those two things, those two ideas kind of breathed in somehow the same air uh, and drank the same water. And that's what I see dominating uh, and, and playing out uh, mm-hmm. even on this, in, in this drama we're facing right now.
2: I think uh, something like George Lakoff's book, Moral Politics, is a helpful guide to some of the pre-Trumpian Kind of play of language and the way in which language itself can be can be turned uh, to create these kinds of, uh, of narratives.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: How do you see sin in all of this? Um, I know it's, it's it's a huge topic, and I don't know precisely what each for each of your definition of sin is. Certainly, the narrative of sin as brokenness, mm-hmm. sin as uh, seeing partially and believing that you see it all. And take your partial and try to impose that partial on everybody else, especially for persons who have the power to do so. I mean, these things to me look like some versions of participation in sin, to use Tillich's language. How do you see sin as playing in this?
1: Oh, you're outing me. I have a really robust theology of sin. Which I like. And I don't I'll, think that's very like.
2: popular in our
1: circles. <laughs> I always think of the quote from the Confessions, woe to you, oh, woe, flood of human custom. Will you never run dry? And it's then it goes on, and there's this image of you know people lining up to to pay money to toss their children into a lake of fire. And so I'll sometimes have students say, well, I really can't live thinking that our whole species is... Just that bad. And I sort of think, like, I can understand that, you Mm -hmm. know, but Mm -hmm. I also watch the news and Mm -hmm. we are Mm -hmm. pretty rotten in a lot of ways. So I don't think I would follow a lot of my uh, fellow theological liberals, theological progressives, in being very optimistic about. Mm Kind of therapeutic capacity. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, I think, like, I've been in therapy, it's uh-huh. very helpful. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But I think, in terms of making humans better, it feels a lot like trying to pull myself out of a swamp by yanking on my hair. There's uh-huh. no part of me that's outside the swamp. Uh-huh. I don't have uh-huh. that leverage. So, uh-huh. um, and that can sound very, Pessimistic, but I also think that the idea of improvability of people can itself become a source of great shaming, so the idea that mm-hmm. like well you sh- mm-hmm. everyone is in principle perfectible. what's mm-hmm. wrong with you mm-hmm. like so i' i am sort of take the approach like everyone's a real mess, <laughs> <and> we're <laughs> muddling through as best we can, but ooh, it is not pretty. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so that's a theology that calls forth a lot of grace also. Yes, right? yeah,
1: and and has room for some odd kind of apocalypticism, or at mm-hmm. least eschatology, I mm-hmm. think, mm-hmm. but hopefully not the, you know, violent.
0: Mm-hmm. Joe?
2: I was thinking when you said that, I'd been looking at Article 1 and Article 2 of impeachment, and, and the first article, right, um, which actually deals with the, uh, uh, issues in Ukraine and the and,
3: uh-huh. the,
2: and the bribery uh-huh. and, and extortion and this uh-huh. kind of thing. The word corruption or variations of corruption appears six times. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. In in the second, it appears only once. But the phrase "abuse of power" uh, occurs at least four times. Mm-hmm. These are both powerful uh, aspects mm-hmm. of the problem of sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I was thinking the other day, and I'll just read a brief passage from Reinhold Niebuhr. This this is going to come from Volume Two of his "The Nature and Destiny of Man." Uh, <laughs> but talk about someone who also rejected a kind of liberal thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, Niebuhr's book. It was, I think, Jimmy Carter who who as president, uh, first called attention to the fact that he read niebuhr nightly, right? Mm-hmm. And, or mm-hmm. something like that, you mm-hmm. know. And, uh, but other presidents, including then Clinton and uh, Barack Obama, uh, also spoke of, of the value of, of reading Niebuhr precisely because of his realism, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So in this uh, passage... He's talking uh, about the egotism of nations. Here I'd like us to think about the egotism that, that, that Trump has nurtured within his group, and not just of, him, of himself. He says, The most conducive proof that the egotism of nations is a characteristic of the spiritual life, and not merely an expression of the natural impulse of survival, is the fact that its most typical expressions are the lust for power, pride, pride, Contempt towards the other, hypocrisy, and finally the claim of moral autonomy, by which the self deification of the social group is made explicit. Right over and over again, there are aspects of this of this profound kind of egotism, this this inward turning of the self. I mean, mm-hmm. Augustine is Augustine. right there with yeah. us, yeah. right? <laughs> and that kind of inward turning for the sake of power, for the sake of of one's either own position or for one's group position. I think these are profound dimensions of sin that are at play here.
0: Final question. Our half hour goes pretty quickly. When you think about yourself in in regard to this issue of impeachment and how it might come out, right? there's one scale which would be more of a pessimism optimism scale and another scale that would be a more hope or despair kind of scale because as we know hope and optimism are not the same thing how do you think of this moment and and try to try to keep your theological hat on when you're doing that i know personally I, my personal disposition is to fall towards the pessimism uh, and then equate the pessimism with something of a despair uh, for the, some of the very reasons we've been talking about, especially around the, the Civil War-ish language, yeah. uh, the rhetoric, uh, and not just rhetoric, uh, but the, the knowledge that there are fringe groups that have been arming and probably more evidence of that than I'd like to look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's scary stuff. So I know that, but my theologically, I wanted to see if I can keep that hope hat on in some way. So where are you? Where, where, where is each of you at in regard to hope, optimism, pessimism, despair?
1: That is such a helpful question, and I really like how you separated them because it's causing me to reflect that I am very pessimistic and very hopeful (laughs) oh okay (laughs) (laughs) which is a little odd um but you know it does explain some of our heated family debates over thanksgiving and christmas i'm pessimistic in the sense that i don't see any resources within the system we have to address Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. i just Mm
3: -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm
1: that would have had to happen already. Right.
0: Feels like a dead. It feels like a dead end has been reached. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And the people who have the power to fix it don't want to. Right. And the people who are hurt by it don't have the power to fix it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't know where we go from here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mentioned our fights at Thanksgiving and Christmas. They weren't actually fights, but my mom, you know, she taught uh, government and American history for years and years and years, and she um, believes more in kind of the American experiment Mm -hmm. and uh, Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. she's coming around to pessimism though frankly Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Um, but I guess I also have hope because in a weird way because I have such a robust theology of sin people being really disappointing and human systems being really disappointing isn't much of a surprise and Mm -hmm. so I've had to Mm -hmm. find some Mm -hmm. source of hope Mm -hmm. outside that Mm -hmm. Um, which I sort of fuzzily envision being coming from God do I have a you know idolatrous notion of who God is? Probably. I mean, I think most people
0: most, do. Most, I mean, that is the human condition, <laughs> isn't right. it? <think>,
1: <laughs> and of course, like among um, theology nerds with multiple graduate degrees, um, especially in kind of mainline Protestantism, we think that if I describe God more abstractly, it's more accurate. No, it's not. It's right, just a right. different way of enshrining my own particular cultural predilections and saying that's how God is. And but
0: making sure that a very limited number of people ever pay attention to what you have to say. <laughs>
1: right, yeah. right, right, right. Um, so, you know, I probably have a, a, a notion of God that involves some projection that Feuerbach would go, aha. Mm-hmm. Um But, you know, that's where my hope is mm-hmm. because – I don't have a lot of hope in what right. humans acting in groups with disparate power manage to do on their own.
2: Hmm. Okay. And on that cheery note, so Joe, so. <laughs> I first want to go to Nixon because Nixon in the end complied with the Supreme Court and turned over the tapes.
3: Right.
2: 18-minute right. okay. so gap on one. Mm-hmm. Christian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and really... There were also members of his party who were, of course, willing to look at the evidence um, and would not turn away from it. And in the end, forced Nixon to resign in a way that enabled healing. It enabled a true narrative of what happened to emerge. And therefore, even though there would be bitterness Mm – right mm-hmm. politically mm-hmm. there could also be a basis for moving forward for saying let's turn the page
0: mm-hmm. actually to allow the system to work yes right because right. if he had if he had stood up to the supreme court and withheld from them oh, well, you know then we'd right. be at kind of where we're at now
2: yes mm-hmm. and so i think that moment of contrast is precisely to say we are nowhere near that Right, we are looking at someone who has defied Congress, uh, who may well defy the court, uh, if need be, uh, out of the same kind of arrogant, know nothing about the Constitution perspective, um, and so I'm not optimistic um, at all about where this lands us. Uh-huh. Right, uh-huh. Because if this is simply going to drive a narrative of, of complete separation
3: uh-huh. Uh-huh. further, uh-huh. deeper, uh-huh. into
2: our political heart, uh-huh. then I, I fear for our capacity to govern
3: uh-huh. ourselves. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
2: Uh, our system of governance requires not just checks and balances, but a capacity to at least trust in the – In enough of the goodness of the other that there will be an attention to shared evidence. I mean, evidence. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right.
2: Right? What we have currently is, in my view, utter willful ignorance. Right? Not simply ignorance. No, no, no. This is willful. This is, we don't even want, and therefore cynical. Comparisons of Trump during the impeachment debate to to Christ being crucified—these right. are right. cynical, right? right? Images, um, and so I, I see nothing really from the president, even when he's asked direct questions, he doesn't answer questions. All he's doing is giving his base the next the next set of lines mm-hmm. to sh- to mm-hmm. spew, mm-hmm. and so in a, in a Period and a time when you cannot in any kind of good faith expect or have confidence in the truth, going back to that question, mm-hmm. right?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Of what someone is saying and doing, right? Your system's at risk. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so that's where mm-hmm. I would that's where I would want to to leave my answer here. Our system is at real
0: risk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Moment of peril. Yes. Yeah. Moment of real peril. And to pair that with hope. Yeah. <laughs> right? But the hope part is, I'm, at least I'm going to say, that the hope part, I'm agreeing with Sarah here, um, the hope part is going to be from something not within the system, something that we don't, ex- from somewhere we don't may- maybe expect. Something that uh, Martin Marty taught me, uh, taught all of his students a long time ago, uh, is is you know as much as he he has over his entire uh, professional career paid attention to how religion shows up in public. Um, mm-hmm. He's always also said, but uh, for Christianity, let's just speaking as a Christian for Christianity in particular. But our ultimate worth and meaning is not found within the sphere of politics, mm-hmm. within the sphere of secular politics. Yeah. It's ultimately found in our um, the relationship uh, between me and the way of Jesus, between me and Jesus Christ, between me and my fellow Christians, uh, between me and God that 's mediated through the church, uh, that that is ultimately that, that, that in some way um, uh, uh, it surpasses anything that politics can offer. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that you know, basically, if if this is the wor- if if this world is the one that we're uh, that we're talking about right now, if this is all we have to hope for, paraphrasing oh, Paul, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, then we of all creatures are most to be despised. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Joe.
2: Well, it's one of the reasons I didn't really like the editorial in Christianity Today um, that said that you know. Um, Mr. Trump should be impeached, um, and in part saying to evangelicals, "Do you have any idea of what this is going to do or what this could do to our reputation so right. so so simply looking to our religious traditions may not themselves when a, when a religious tradition is itself so so turned into its own desire for power and place and and culture." <laughs> then it it also is, stands in need of help from outside itself right and on on and so again i i uh, I think that the these voices of protest from within and on the margins of the evangelical community about the character mm-hmm. currently mm-hmm. of the evangelical community and I might say Christian conservatism across the board uh, it, needs to be heard i'm not sure it can be heard in those groups right now but it i would i would pray that it is heard
0: and i and and for me i mean i i agree with that yeah and i would also hope that those those of us in other theological positions would take this as a real object lesson yes uh that we not allow ourselves to be so colonized by the divisive political discourse with its limited imagination mm-hmm. uh, and sure. range of options for how to behave towards each other that we have nothing else to bring to the table yeah. because yeah. when that moment comes we are either dangerous or irrelevant mm-hmm. just the way that the christian right has made in my estimate that are that version of christianity dangerous
2: yeah good
1: point do you have time for an anecdote? I guess yeah, go ahead. it can be edited out. But this is making me think. I'm involved in a church plant, as mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. It's a Mennonite church, not the bonnets and buggies kind of Mennonite. Right. Mennonite right. Church USA, progressive, open and affirming. Peace church. Yeah, yeah. First of all, I'm 42. I think I'm like the oldest woman in the church mm-hmm. at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and... There, aren't, there are some people who were raised Mennonite, but there are some people who are kind of um, exiles from mainline denominations that have a more establishment, kind mm-hmm, of cozy mm-hmm, history. Mm-hmm. history. Kind, of, um, kind
0: of pillars of the community type exactly. church. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: And what I'm hearing especially from the younger folks, who, again, are not Christian conservatives, I mean, at all but their sentiment is look christianity has been discredited Hmm. like that's just assumed Hmm. Hmm. so if i'm gonna bother Hmm. to come to church on a sunday i don't want an accommodated christianity like by definition i'm bothering to affiliate myself with something that i have a lot of distaste for as a brand or you know mm-hmm. as a mm-hmm. a cultural um, as a kind of cultural currency so so then if i'm here i'm here for something other than something i can't get anywhere else and of course that's for mm-hmm. most of them um, a certain understanding of jesus and what mm-hmm. jesus was about mm-hmm. vis-a-vis mm-hmm. empire mm-hmm. not vis-a-vis hell avoidance and being accepted into our hearts um, so i think that's an interesting development because it includes that critique that Joe was talking about of the religious right and says you know the editorial is absolutely right like white evangelicalism outside of your own quarters like your brand I mean I hate to put it in capitalist terms but they seem to be often very comfortable doing so so your brand is mud but I think it's also a word to mainline denominations to say Now's not the time to be like, well, but we're not we're not really churchy, you know. We're, mm-hmm. we're more mm-hmm. about self fulfillment in whatever mm-hmm. way you find it, and and kind of therapy with Jesus occasionally, <laughs> right? And I I think that that solved a problem at one point mm-hmm. that needed to be solved, mm-hmm. and a lot of people um, with histories of religious trauma certainly would, for good reason, find that appealing. But what I'm hearing from folks involved in this church plant and also online in church planning conversations is like nobody is excited to say oh i'm i'm a christian i'm gonna go to church so if they're showing up it's because they really want jesus or or something mm-hmm. that isn't available anywhere mm-hmm. else because it's embarrassing
0: mm. wow. <laughs> distasteful wow. right. right yeah well, Joe and Sarah, thank you so much for being on with me today and uh, committing faith in public. That term, committing faith in public, is something I know you all do a lot through your teaching, through your interaction with students, through your involvement in the West Star Institute. I really appreciate you taking time this afternoon in a really super busy January here at Phillips Theological Seminary to do this. Thank
2: you. Thanks. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. It was a pleasure. What a lot
0: of fun. This has been Committing Faith in Public a podcast from the Religion and Public Life Initiative at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma, copyright PTS and Gary Paluso-Verdend. The views and opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect an official position of Phillips Theological Seminary.